Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. We're going to finish up the passage I started two weeks ago as we started looking at the ordinances of the church that we as Baptists observe. And two weeks ago, we looked at baptism, and uh, there's a lot we could have said more about baptism, and you could spend a long time on that issue. Um, some, a couple of things that we did not mention, didn't dive into, and we won't necessarily today, but they'll come up later. The issue of baptism as judgment. That's a big one, I think, we can find in Scripture and talk about that, what that means. You talk about flood, you talk about washing, all of those things. And then baptism is new creation, you know, the resurrection, because that's what it pictures, the death and being raised to life. So there's a lot more we could have said, but what I wanted to leave you with at that time was this, that saving grace is not conveyed by these ordinances, but sustaining grace is conveyed through them. Now, I would mentioned that last time. And just like last time, now, it was intentional. I knew that I would have the privilege of baptizing Sam and then using that as a platform to talk about that issue. And I thought, well, I'll finish this in two weeks and talk about the issue of communion or the Lord's Supper. And I didn't plan this. So here we get the visual again. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, we can go right into this after we discuss what this is all about. Um, so we'll turn our attention to the second half of the text, which would begin in verse 41, but uh, it flows naturally out of what we looked at a couple of weeks ago. So if baptism is the symbol of uniting us to Christ and his body, the church, then what does that life look like day to day? And that's so important because utterly tied into what we will observe here this morning is everything we do in between the times we're not observing this. It had, for this to have its meaning, there are things that must be in place, just like with baptism. For it to have its meaning, things had to be in place. And with the Lord's Supper, with communion, there are things that must continually, I will argue, and that, that Luke will tell us here in Acts, be in place for it to have any meaning whatsoever. So baptism was dealt with by clear instruction, and the Lord's Supper or communion is dealt with by obvious illusion. Not illusion. This is not a magic trick. It's illusion with an A. So it's, it's there. It's in the text. And it is given to us in the context of the larger life of the body. And that's what's so important for us. If this is going to have its proper meaning for us. So I want to focus on today that just as baptism could not be divorced from Faith and repentance for it to have any meaning at all. There are things the Lord's Supper cannot be divorced from for it to be rightly observed and for it not to become dangerous because, because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, there is a way to partake of the Lord's Supper in which we eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. We ought not take that lightning. He's not talking about eschatological judgment. For believers, he's talking about temporal consequences for what you're doing. So much so that some of the Corinthians had become sick or died. We sort of don't think much about that, but what that tells us is there is a proper way for us to partake of this ordinance. Sorry, guys. So historically and theologically, here's what we know about this issue, okay? Just saying, setting up certain things about the Lord's Supper. Number one, the Lord's Supper is for baptized believers in Jesus Christ. Our text and many others Make that very clear. We'd also say 
It's for believers in right relationship with Jesus and with one another. And that's what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 11. That right relationship is very important. Also, I think the Bible bears out and some extra biblical historical documents bear out that the Lord's Supper was celebrated at every Lord's Day worship gathering. And I think that's important. Also, we know that the elements in the Lord's Supper are the bread and the cup. We find that out in the Gospels because they represent something. This is what Jesus instituted for us. But above all that, if you just consider those things, above all that stand these two absolutely essential truths. You cannot separate the Lord's Supper from the clear preaching of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It does not stand by itself as something we do. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But also, it cannot be divorced from regularly experienced and cultivated life in the body. You see, it has everything to do with those two things. The gospel of Jesus Christ and life together in the body. And I would argue that it's that second thing that we don't think much about and that we, because of our cultural context, struggle with. Because when we read what we're getting ready to read in the book of Acts, it looks radically different than what we experience. And there are cultural reasons for that, but that does not mean what they are doing is not important or does not apply to us. So we need to do the hard work of figuring out how it is that we can be just as they are. Okay? So, I, you know, I've been in early as a young pastor, which I just found out this week that my wife said, you know, your sermons when you first started weren't, ew, they weren't that good. And that shocked me. Because she's always told me they were great. Like, well, you lied to me. But early on at, at the church I was pastoring when I was younger, there were several couples that came to church only when the Lord's Supper was being observed. Because they did it on a regular schedule, you know, once a month, morning, evening, morning, evening. So they knew when it was, and they only came, and trust me, for a young pastor to try to deal with that, with long-established members, that doesn't go very well for the young pastor. But my goodness, what an atrocious practice that is. To just come for that. And I don't know what in their minds they thought it was doing for them or how they were benefiting from it. What type of grace they thought they would receive from doing that. Being totally disconnected from the body. But it wasn't good. And we're first introduced to the practice of, of coming to the table to celebrate and remember and proclaim in the Gospels. Because Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, observes the Passover with his disciples. But then he does something absolutely amazing. He plants in the soil of what they had just observed in the Passover meal a taste-filled visual of what he was getting ready to do. That is something we would continue to observe. And, and in reality, what he did, when you look in the Gospels and, and read about that scene, he is transforming Passover into communion. Now, what do I mean by that? He's transforming the deliverance and the focus on the deliverance to focus on the point of the deliverance, communion with God. 
So there's a, there's a shift in focus and transformation, but we're still tied to that very issue. So its roots are in the Passover as a fulfillment of the giving of a Passover lamb for the people of God who deserve judgment and desperately need deliverance. And that's what we celebrate, that he has done that. Because in reality, its, its roots are also in a covenant meal. Because basically, when kings in the ancient, ancient Near Eastern culture would, would come to an agreement, whereas you and I, when we have agreements, if you sign a lease or buy a car or whatever it may be, you sign a contract. The contract in this context was a meal. Man, that would be great. But that's what it was. They sat and ate together. This is why you read in the Old Testament of God consuming, eating what's on the altar. Because it's a covenant meal between him and his people. And we're introduced to this in Genesis 14, when after Abram has rescued his nephew Lot, this mysterious king named Melchizedek, whose name, by the way, means king of righteousness. So who's, who's he shadowing? He appears and, and brings out bread and wine and then pays a tithe to Abram. So there, there's a meal involved here that's, that's more than just a small wafer and a sip. It means so much more than that. I mean, we commemorate that, but we're commemorating something much larger than just that. And I think it bears out in this passage just as with baptism, which we never find in Scripture outside of the context of repentance and faith, so here we never find an observance of the Lord's Supper or instruction thereto outside of the context, and listen, of a vibrant, involved, active, and anchored life among God's people in the body of Christ. It's essential. So in our look at this, what we'll see the church here We'll look at their focus and their practice, and it's very informative to us. So I'm going to read in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to go ahead and read what we read last, the, two weeks ago, starting in verse 37. And if you are able this morning, would you stand as we read the Word of God together? Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37, Luke records these words for us. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God will call to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated this morning.
Now, two weeks ago, I talked about the founding of redemptive community. That's, that was baptism. That's the entrance. That's the level of starting out. So today we talk about the forging of redemptive community through the issue of communion or the Lord's Supper. So we're just looking at verses 42 through 47. So if baptism is the act of initiation into the people of promise, then communion is the act of fellowship within that people. See, you'll, you'll start to get, when I, when I use the word communion, it's, it, its core is this, but it's, it's much broader. So you're going you're gonna to be confused at times going, is he talking about this or just life together? Yes. That, that's the point. So it's a proclamation as well of the communion we have with one another and with God the Father through Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. That's how we live. So Luke has described for us here the effect that Peter's sermon had on the people there. You remember it well. And remember the burning question on their lips was, Brothers, what shall we do? And that came in response to the gospel's diagnosis of who they are. And I would mentioned last time that is the most important diagnosis you will ever get. Everything else only affects here. This diagnosis affects eternity. So, and his instruction to them was the whole exercise of repentance and faith, which included a demand for baptism as a sign of breaking with the old life and embracing Christ as Lord and Savior. So it was dying to self, judgment, a death is involved, and living now in Christ alone, new creation. There's those two aspects of baptism we could have dove into a little deeper. So coming out of the experience of judgment and new creation, that baptism displays what does this new life look like? And this is what Luke describes for us. And understand we're talking about this new life because the observance of the Lord's Supper is woven through it. This is not something that is apart from who we are. It's not an activity that we enter into necessarily. So the things we see in this passage are the things that keep our observance of the Lord's Supper and coming to the table being what it's, it's meant to be. It's about who we are and why we are who we are, if that makes any sense. So there are at least, I think Luke describes for us, at least four aspects of this new life. And the first one I would say is this. You might find it in verses 42 and 43. Continual devotion. Now, as we would expect, when someone has been converted to Christ, when the Spirit has opened their eyes and they've come to Christ in repentance and faith, there is a radical change. I mean, because the word repentance means a change of direction. There's a radical change in the things that they are devoted to. Things that we once held as absolutely essential either find their proper place and pecking order in our life or some of them are eliminated altogether. That happens. Because our priorities are changed. So we have a continual devotion to certain things. It's, it's a perpetual devotion, which is an affectionate term, isn't it? To be devoted is to be affectionately attached to something. So I think there's at least within these four, but this first one, continual devotion, I think we find at least three things. Number one, they were continually devoted to learning. And I just don't mean... Learning in general. But look at what Luke says here. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Why? Why is this the first thing he mentions in this list? And why do you devote yourself to the apostles' teaching? See, they, they understood. Now, keep in mind, those who had come to Christ and said, Brothers, what shall we do? 
They knew their Bible. There in Jerusalem, these Jews were familiar with the Old Testament, the Bible of Jesus. So they knew it, but they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching because they understood that the Word of God through the lens of the gospel is absolutely essential to living life as they were to live it. You cannot. I mean, this is why Jesus said, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You cannot live as you're supposed to and experience change and move forward to the glory of God without his word at the center of who you are. That's why Luke mentions it first. That's why they were continually devoted to it. And I'm guilty of not experiencing this type of intense devotion, if I'm just being very honest with you. Because the last thing I want you to hear from me is that I'm shaking my finger at you and saying, shame on you, this is what you should do. This is convicting to me. I'm way too busy at times to even crack my Bible. But you know what I experience? Exactly what you would think based on what I just said. I don't experience movement forward, and I sure don't experience a pursuit of holiness. As a matter of fact, I kind of slip the other way. So this is essential for us to be continually devoted to this. I mean, and again, it's not just, because here's the other danger, being devoted to the apostles' teaching. And I mean, I, I love to read about certain doctrines or church history or, you know, and I know we've got students in here that, that are the same way, and, and those of us who have been Christians for a long time, the same way. But it's a means to an end. So the danger is that we just read and try to take in all this knowledge, but to what end? Is it to help you explore the depths of who God is, which you will be doing, by the way, for all eternity, because you'll never get to the bottom of who he is? Does it help you love him more? Does it aid in your worship? Because theology should lead to doxology every time. So this is why they're doing that. And Peter said in 1 Peter 2.2, he says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Like those sound effects. You guys can say, man, the, the preaching was thunderous today. So, so even Peter, Peter's saying here, that this is essential. The, the pure, Peter's, Peter's referencing the word, pure spiritual milk, that you may, by it you may grow into salvation. And watch this, because here comes the second thing they were continually devoted to. If we're going to be continually devoted to learning, we have to be to the end that we will be continue, continually devoted to loving. Look at the next thing there. They were continually devoted to the fellowship. This is the only time Luke uses this word in his writings, so it's important for us to grasp what he means. So the same word is also translated in other places, contribution, participation, sharing, which tells us that it's more than just hanging out and eating or drinking. I mean, that is fellowship, and that's often how we define it. You know, we're fellowshipping, we're going to Wendy's or whatever it may be, if that's your thing. But that's not the totality of biblical fellowship. So fellowship goes beyond the time we spend together. It's a mindset. It's living with the understanding that you are a part of a community. And then that thus is how you live your life. Because I want you to notice the article here, the. This is a noun. It's It's not the verb fellowship. It's a noun. It's a group of people. They are continue. get this, continually devoted to a group of people. 
that radically changes how we read it. I'm not continually devoted to a, an activity. I'm continually devoted to people. And so that's what feeds the rest of what we'll see coming here. It's not an activity. It's a group. So the next thing he says, and not to leap off of that, but we'll come, we'll, it, it gets back into that. That's essential, and it'll come back around. But the next thing he mentions here is that they're continually devoted to worship. Look at what he says. To the breaking of the bread, or the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now, there's some debate here, but the weight of evidence seems to indicate that what Luke is referring to here is a designation for the Lord's Supper. That this was already a practice that they had started doing. It's a technical term used by Luke because he will reference meals a little later, and he's not redundant in his writing. So it's amazing that this is mentioned, right? And if, you know, if we agree that this is a mention of the Lord's Supper, this is something they're doing together, that he mentions it right in the middle of this devotion to all of these other things, devotion to life lived within the community of faith, because you can't separate the two. And then he says to the prayers, and this could be liturgical prayers, certain psalms that they would sing and pray, which would likely indicate morning and evening prayers in the temple. But the point is, is that they were continually devoted. I mean, that didn't go away. Probably even more so, they saw the need, because now they have full access to the Father through Christ, to pray together. And there was a continual devotion to that. So, as a result, I mean, this is what they were doing in verse 43 there. As a result, I'll find it here. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So God perpetuated a very tangible sense of his presence and a measurable demonstration of his power among them. And what he was doing was validating the truth of the gospel among his people. And it flows out of the fact that they were together, that they lived life together. So now... Continual devotion. That's, that was an immediate change in their life, having come to Christ. Now watch this next one. And the next two, really, they're inseparable, and they bleed into one another. But this gets to the heart of what we're talking about when we talk about communion. So I would say the next thing they were, was a part of their lives was continual fellowship. Watch this. In verse 44, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now when I say continual fellowship here, I mean it as the verb, the action. So it says, and, they, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now, all of the pronouns in this passage have been third person plural, hitting the reality that they were together. So the two aspects of, of, of fellowship here are they were together, they had all things in common. Everything is in common. So Luke's mention of them having all things in common is a reference to the shared context of their lives. But here's what I want you to see. This is fellowship at the level of time and treasure. When you talk about real biblical fellowship, it's at the level of, of our time and what we hold is valuable, our treasure. This level of fellowship breaks our love of self and our love of stuff. And I've learned that that, that doesn't take place by yourself. If you leave me by myself, 
down in my basement with all my books and guitars, guess what I'm pouring all my time into? Books and guitars. And that's not right. Because the point here is, that we'll see, is that people are more important than possessions. And so if we truly have fellowship at that level, it starts to break our grip on things. Our schedule, our stuff, which is very important. And watch what it develops into in verse 45. And this sort of proves what we're saying. Verse 45 says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, we think, so, Eric, are you saying that we need to start selling stuff and just giving our money away? I'm not saying that. Because the point here is not that they were radically committed to selling their stuff. The point here is that they were radically committed to one another. And radically committed to making sure everyone's taken care of. So it's not always going to look like that. Okay? There'll be times that, yeah, you can help somebody by doing X, Y, or Z. Yes. You know that. But you know that. But I think Luke is demonstrating for us that they were radically committed to the one another, to, to one another, and their time and possessions didn't stand in the way of them making sure that they were living life together and taking care of one another. That's the point. And how it looks in our context will be different. But do we think that way sometimes, or any of the time, really? Because it's hard. It's, it doesn't come naturally. Because we are naturally, the default is, is to be self-centered. The gospel is what turns us out. Which, again, gets us back to why we need the Word of God. If we're going to fix, you know... By grace, if the Lord will do that work in us to turn us outward toward one another, it will come through his word, in time in his word, being together in prayer. Watch the next one here. So, continual devotion, continual fellowship, that activity that looks radical. Verse 46, you have this continual communion. And here's where Luke again gets technical. Because he uses the same term he used before. So in verse 46, the thing I want us to see is the context that is in place for the observance of the Lord's Supper to be rightly observed. Look in verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So what is he describing here? Now this, again, gets to the issue of how they live their lives together. What it looked like. So... Parallel to the designation of devoting themselves continually to, that we have in verse 42, is this description of what, what it means to do things day by day, what they were committed to day by day. Number one was attending the temple. And we might ask, well, why would they continue to do that? Why would, why would Christians now continue to go to the temple? And I think there are two reasons. One is practical and one is strategical. Practically, this is why they would, you know, they would go because this is the place where they could hear in large numbers the apostles' teaching in the outer courts. They could gather together in the outer courts and Peter could teach, John could teach, the apostles could teach what they needed to hear. They could begin to understand and develop a biblical theology of how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus and what that means for them. But the second thing is strategically is this is where they could gather and proclaim the gospel 
to their countrymen who were waiting for the Messiah and had not embraced him. So it's discipleship and evangelism. This is the place they needed to be. But look at the next thing. Also, they're breaking bread in their homes. So that's the technical term again. But now we're in homes. Well, there's a very good reason for that. As I would argue, this is talking about communion. That would not have taken place in the temple. That would not have gone well. But they gathered in homes, and this is where worship services took place. In homes, they would observe the Lord's Supper together there. So it's just a a very practical reason they did it, but it also created a sense of intimacy. I mean, think about Jesus being in that upper room with his disciples and how intimate that was. It captures some of that. Nothing wrong with us doing it in mass. We, we, we need to do that. That's E-N, not I-N. I keep having to make sure you hear me say the right thing. We're doing it with a lot of people. So that's okay. We, we need to do that as the body. So, again, it indicates that I believe every time they gathered together for worship, they celebrated the Lord's Supper, that they partook of the table. So central to their worship was a remembrance and celebration of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Now, let me be careful here. A lot of people hold to this view that I do. It it doesn't mean, is it wrong to not, is it sinful to not observe the Lord's Supper every single Sunday? No, absolutely not. Do we miss out on something? Do we miss a blessing by not doing it every single Sunday? And again, just like with baptism, I know why we do it the way we do it. There are logistical reasons for having, do it, having done it the way we do it, but do we, do we miss out some? I'd say, yeah. And that's just my personal conviction. I'm not mad that we don't, I'm, not at all. I don't even think of it. But when it comes time to do it, I think, wow, this should cap, not as a separate issue, but as a part of our worship together. Just be something that we do. And so, if you think about it, I mean, it says, this is continual devotion in a day-by-day practice. That's, that's the context we're in. Luke is describing for us things that they were continually devoted to. And then number three, I would say this. It says, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So um, I believe this indicates that the Lord's Supper was joined with a part of what we would call, or what has been called, a larger meal, the, the agape feast, the love feast, that, that it wasn't just this single thing that they did with just the bread and the cup. That was part of it. But then there was a larger meal together that they partook of, which emphasized, again, their fellowship and their eating together. You know as well as I do that it's, something special takes place. When you have people in your home and you eat a meal with them, that's a deeper level of getting to know one another. That's a deeper level of, of communication. And the same thing happens when we do it. One of the most powerful times I've experienced as a pastor, um, ironically, is after I resigned as a pastor in New Mexico. Um, there were several people that said, we want to worship with you every Sunday. And so those, it became... In the transition time, just a little house church meeting. And so one thing we did was took communion 
together, and then that led into a larger meal. And it was powerful because the sense of worship continued around the table. And again, I'm not arguing for us to do this. I'm just letting you know what, that there's so much more than, than we sometimes perceive what we do here to be. And it's not that we have to do certain things a certain way, but that we need to remember the big picture, that it has to do with that connection and communion and the deep level of trust and love for one another, living life together, being t- continually devoted to one another, not an activity. There's a big difference. The continual devotion to one another will drive our activities. That's how it should be, not the reverse. So, um, I, you know, I think this is why. I mean, why would I say it's part of a larger meal? This is why in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives instructions about don't get drunk and don't be a glutton at the Lord's Supper. Well, that's not likely to happen with a little cracker and a cup of juice. Paul's saying a lot of you are eating way too much and some of you are getting drunk. Get drunk at your own home. He didn't say that, but he essentially said, don't you have homes to act like that in? Don't do it. So there's a way to not partake of the Lord's Supper. And so, again, it just calls us to remember the larger picture of what's taking place here. So now, the last thing, verse 47, that ad, those four aspects of this new life, this forging of redemptive community, I would say this, that they were committed to. Now, this is, I mean this in the passive sense. They were committed to continual growth. So this isn't something they did and made happen. And the text makes that very clear. But this was something that was continually on their minds and in their hearts and came out of what they did together. So it says, but notice how Luke writes this. Praising God, and here it is. You can underline it in your Bible if you haven't already. And having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their numbers day by day, there's that phrase again, those who were being saved. So what does the Lord's table have to do with real church growth? And what I mean by real church growth, I mean conversion-driven church growth. And transfer growth is great too, but talking about the body of Christ growing, we're talking about people coming to Christ in repentance and faith, which is what we want to see. What does the Lord's Supper have to do with it? I would argue everything. Everything. Because a church where communion is honestly and sincerely partaken of because the prerequisite context of living together and being committed continually to one another is in place, that church will experience real conversion-driven growth. Here's why. Life in Christ is attractive to those who see it lived out. You think about the joy, the fellowship, the peace, the strength in suffering, and the loving care for one another that we should demonstrate. That speaks loudly to people who were hardwired for community but have not found it yet. And that's why everything we do in between the times we come to the table is absolutely essential to the time we come to the table. And absolutely essential to who we are, I'll just say it this way, as Fisherville Baptist Church. It has everything to do with it. This is not an activity. This is who we are. That's how we have to see it. It's who we are. We're just making a proclamation of who we are and why we are who we are. 
It's, it's so much more than I've let it be in my life. Because here's the underlying truth of this point, of being committed to continual growth as the Lord brings it, is this. The Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit who indwells a missionary people. You can't get around that. If the Spirit of Christ be in you, and as Paul would say in Romans, if he's not, you're none of his. But if the Spirit of Christ be in you, then you are a missionary. In your context, you have the words of life. You have the message of hope. You've been sent and placed in your context for the sake of the fame of God's name through the gospel to the ends of the earth. So you can be right where you are, but you can have an impact to the ends of the earth. We just have to embrace that. Remember, that's what this is about. So a correct understanding of this ordinance is vital to our functioning and our health as a church. And, and no one, no one can come to the table who takes sin lightly. I mean, can you imagine? How can we, and I'm sure I have, but when you think about the breaking and tearing, now this little wafer doesn't give us that, that visual or that sound, when you think about the tearing, Jesus saying, this is my body. He's saying something profound there. And when he pours the wine, this is my blood. He's saying something profound there. How can we come to this meal and take sin lightly in our own lives? I think this is why Paul says, you know, let a man examine himself. Implying men and women. So as we come to the table today, I pray we consider what I believe this text shows us, that we be committed to continual, continual devotion to, to learning, loving, and worship, that that's how we are, to continual fellowship with one another that's at the time and treasure level, to com continual communion, that we see this as having everything to do with how we live, and then continual growth as a marker of who we are. So right before we observe, I want to say this. We consider three things, and you've heard me say this before, because I've had the privilege of, of leading us in communion for a few months now. There are three things that we think about. The past, the present, and the future. As to the past, we think about the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. And what we exercise in that context is faith. It's a trusting in his finished work. That's what this reminds us of. As to the present, it has everything to do with the intercession of Christ for his people as they live together. That's here and now. And what we exercise during this time is love. Love for him, love for one another. As to the future, this represents the return of Christ to consummate his kingdom. Jesus said, I won't drink of this until I drink it anew with you in my kingdom. And what we exercise during this time is hope. It amazes me. Faith, hope, love. And Paul knows, he knows what he's talking about. Faith, hope, and love. And that has everything to do with this. And he said the greatest of these is love. Why? Because 
Faith will become sight. Hope will be realized. But you know what we carry into eternity for one another and for Christ? Love. It never ends. That's why it's the greatest. So I, I realize I've given you a whole lot to, to think about and, and, and to chew on as we come to the table today. But I just want to sum it up this way. Here's the one thing I want you to think about as we do this together. We drink the cup of the covenant because Jesus drank the cup of wrath on our behalf. That's why we can come. That's why he says come. And as scripture would tell us, I would urge you in this moment to examine yourselves. To not eat and drink temporal judgment on yourself. If you're a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we invite you to partake of this meal because this is his table, not Fisherville Baptists. We invite you to examine yourself to see if you be in right relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. If there be any sin that you need to confess, that you think about these things. So take just a moment in silent prayer and prepare yourself for the table if you would.